Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast and refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information prior to listening to this podcast. Hello, I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Julius Bear. Today, Monday, February the 8th, I'm joined by Bhaskar Laxmanarayan, our Chief Investment Officer and Head of Investment Management in Asia. Hello, Bhaskar. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. Well, in the next 15 minutes, Bhaskar and I are going to review the key themes that we started the year with and discuss the dynamics in the markets. There's a lot to go through, interest rates, currencies, bonds, stocks. Give you a little update on what we think about the vaccines and the stimulus that's coming from the United States. And we're going to give you some of our investment recommendations. That's a lot to do. And let's start right away, Bhaskar. Um, could you tell us about some of those key themes we launched back in December and if we still like them? Thank you, Mark. Yes, let me first quickly recap the four things that we highlighted at the beginning of the CR Mark. We said, we talked about the big picture. We I'm did. Gonna, uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. We talked about the Sino-U.S. relationship and the bipolar world that we live in today, Mm -hmm. at least from an investment perspective. Uh, Then we talked about the rich valuations that we have to stay and live with again, and some of the key risks that we have to keep an eye on for this year. Let me cover the first two, and then I'm going to hand it back to you, Mark. So let's start with the big picture. We said we were sort of in, in in a reflation, not exactly a reflationary environment, but definitely coming to better times in 2021 as compared to 2020. For sure. It's still called the reflation trade for what it's worth. Um, And we also said that the COVID situation is likely to get better in 2021 than it was in 2020. Touch wood, that's how it's going, at least at this stage. So the early news on vaccine still seems to be a positive one in balance. Now, we also said what we liked, which is technology, healthcare, cyclicals, and small caps. Mm -hmm. All of these we continue to like, Mark. Okay. So just to answer the question yeah. of whether we still are Those on the are same themes. Those are inequities. How about fixed income? Exactly. Now on fixed income, we did say it was going to be a more difficult space and we're going to maintain that same argument today. But we do f- see opportunities in EU peripherals, which we sort of mentioned back then, low-grade debt, which means high-yield debt. You have to take credit risk in this year. There is really no other way around. And then there are some emerging markets, clearly hard currency, which is still very valuable, crossover credits, which do have some, some play, right? And on the whole concept of Sino-US, yeah. which is the second theme we talked about, I think there uh, you're going to feel possibly a bit more moderation than anything else. But it's not going to go away, which means the conflict is, the conflict mm. is still going to exist uh, because these are now two, in a way, superpowers speaking and people who, who sort of uh, remember the space race. I do. You know? Yeah. So, well, know, I can't say I remember it because I wasn't really born at the time, but, uh, uh, but I read the history. You, you, you read the history, exactly. <laughs> so in, in a way, uh, well, I, I used to see some James Bond movies which had reference yeah. to it. So I'm assuming it's, it's sort of the same thing. So do you mean that they're both going to be competing in technology and they'll be inventing things in that process, just like the Americans and the Russians did? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, and, I, and I think that's why 
I think people see this as competition, but competition is healthy. Yeah. Right? Sure. So it's not necessarily one telling the other person to stop doing things. It's actually both improving themselves in this process. So which is why we call it the bipolar world from an investment point of view. The necessity to own both in the portfolios is becoming extremely crucial. Right? And this is, in a way, this learning, being forced to, in fact, do things separately mm-hmm. enhances the market space, mm-hmm. enhances the offering that's available in the world. So we think it's a positive. Mm-hmm. Right? But, you know, but we will talk more about that, Mark, as we go along. Let's get to the valuations part of it. What do you think there? Well, you just said that the valuations are, are rich, and I concur. And that was our third theme, Baskar. And, and uh, only about a third of the investable universe globally, I'm talking about everything, stocks and bonds, you name it, is yielding 5% or more. So that is a challenge. But you know, on Wall Street, everything gets compared to treasury yields, ultimately. They're the risk-free rate. Risk-free rate. And so the the fact that, you know, you had over the last 30 years, the average yield on the 10-year treasury was 4.3%. So so people would say, if I can get 4.3% on my money without taking any risk, why should I own a lot of risky stuff? And then today that yield, as you well know, is down to 1.2%. And so for the vast majority of people, 1.2% isn't enough to generate. You can't live off, uh, you know, unless you're talking about an extraordinary amount of money, you can't really live off of 1.2% per year. We talk about low inflation, but it's not no inflation. So there Mm, is still some inflation. There is. So anyway, you know, I remember Warren Buffett gave an interview four years ago and something he said really struck with me, struck me. He said the most important item over time in valuation is obviously interest rates. And if interest rates are destined to be at very low levels, it makes any stream of earnings from investments worth more money. And so, so that's the thing. And you and I are going to discuss it is that interest rates we think are going to stay low. Don't we, Baskar? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, so that was one of the things we recommended on the back of that was, well, we, we like growth because if interest rates are low, then the growth gets more discounted. Uh, I should say that it's more valuable. Uh, the earnings that you get in the future, if you discount them, are, are more valuable today. Now, the, the, To some extent, yeah. Mark, so that can we say that for even the valuations look expensive, in the current context, they might be justified. It is absolutely right. And, and we didn't even talk about the earnings growth and the you know, technology sector in the U.S. I'm sure you saw those uh, tech giants were giving you earnings. What was it? I can't even remember now. Something somewhere, of, somewhere in the 40s. The yeah. others were in the high 20s. So they were all in the teens and above yeah. anyway. So which is quite healthy. Yeah. Which actually means their price earnings ratios are not as high as one would have thought. They're probably in the low 20s. Anyway, the 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 fourth and last theme, Baskar, was risks and the three risks that we saw as being low probability but still high impact were some kind of global internet outage like somehow the internet goes down uh and we saw a potential for an inflation risk just you know intuitively if we get a big recovery in the economy as the covid uh, pandemic fades away and uh then we also looked at you know just the the whole issue of the environment and the acceleration and natural disasters that's been happening over the last five years. Well, what if we get, you know, even bigger ones this year, as crazy as it is to think coming after COVID. And so the investments that we paired with those were cybersecurity, emerging market equities, 
on the on that's the sort of inflation angle. Smart energy and smart mobility for uh, the environment. And so those are those are the second, uh, the third and fourth themes, uh, Bhaskar, Just to just to sort of bring them together with you telling us about uh, the first and the second. Now. I think uh, what I want to ask you next, Bhaskar, is that has there been any change in the the macro framework since we launched those themes back in December to make them work any better or any worse? Has anything changed in the world? The, The one thing that I can say for sure is there is more of the same, not less of the same, right? Meaning we said that the central banks were going to keep interest rates low. They're going to keep liquidity high. They have. And, and the fiscal stimulus, all three of these things that we talked about. And now let me touch upon the central bank's angle, right? So here, I think you, you heard Jerome Powell talk about it now. Uh, yeah. And, and, and it's clear. Uh, and that's, in a way, a lead indicator for all other central banks to follow. So one of the things that I think the U.S. still leads is in setting policy for everybody else to follow, right? And we're going to see that it, this liquidity phase, as well as the low interest phase, is here to stay. Right. Bhaskar, I just have to ask you um, if you could tell us, uh, you know, why? Why uh, why does the U.S. still set the stage when it comes to monetary policy? That's a very, uh, it's still because it's still seen as somebody who is sort of ahead on this whole financial policy making yeah. uh, tool. For example, if we were to look at technology, China has caught up heavily with, with the U.S. But when it comes to financial policy or planning, it does look like the U.S. is still sort of showing the way to the rest of the world. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying China's very far behind, but China does have a bit more of a steep learning curve there as compared to what it has in technology, for example. I guess you could add the sheer size of their economy, you know, relative to the others and the sheer size of their market relative to the others. I think although China's coming up very fast, its equity market is only still about a, well, I want to say less than a quarter the size of the U.S. one. So in many ways, it is the benchmark. But sorry, I interrupted you. So. No, and, and just to add to that, even though this is not really what we want to talk about, but the fact is very interesting why you asked about the U.S. You know, uh, the balance sheet recession has happened before. It happened in Japan. Yeah. And, but Japan didn't handle it very well. And the U.S. did handle it pretty well. So you should give them some credit, and therefore possibly there is some leadership position there. I understand. Absolutely. Well, that's the monetary side. Uh, maybe I could just add to that the fiscal side. And when I think back on, you know, my, my memory from childhood, I, I, I certainly remember Ronald Reagan and, and, uh, and he had a saying, uh, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. And so basically all through my time in the market, and I think you, Bhaskar, too, we, we, you know, which is to say the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, it was up to the central banks to respond whenever there were recessions. And, and they did. They cut interest rates. And, and over the last 10 years, they started printing money like crazy. But that money had to go through Wall Street before it could get to Main Street. So by the time it got to Main Street, there wasn't as much of it. And I think the really key thing that happened last year, you might remember there was a guy named Andrew Yang. Yes. And he was a a successful entrepreneur. The universal pay proponent. Right. And his uh, campaign platform was exactly that, monthly checks to every adult American in the Democrat primaries. And he was ridiculed, by the way, ridiculed for that idea. But then COVID came along. And all of a sudden, it didn't seem so ridiculous after all. And in it's fact, Trump set out, progression. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, Trump set out two stimulus checks na- last year, and, and Biden's about to send out another big stimulus uh, uh, check. And so that, I think, is a very important change. And uh, that stimulus, when you just think about the amount of money that will be pushed into the economy, another $1.9 trillion probably this year, 
that the economists were only looking for about a trillion dollars is uh, very material indeed. Absolutely. And, and Mark, you know, this is exactly what uh, I think we've talked about saying both the monetary aspect, which we already said is going to stay, monetary but the fiscal. And fiscal coming together. It's coming together. I mean, which is, which is what people call the MMT in some form. Modern uh, monetary, monetary theory. Monetary theory. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if, has this been done anywhere before? No. This is the first time that we've had such low rates, huge liquidity, and a fiscal program which sort of shoots the, you know, yeah, budget deficits to new highs. Uh, and this has never been done before. Uh, and this is also why we call it, you know, this is where the governments really come back. Uh, government-sponsored capitalism comes from the same, same uh, thesis, right? And if you were to listen to Treasury uh, Secretary Janet Ellen last week, she did say that low-wage workers, minorities, uh, this is not, they are not in trouble because of their own doing, but this is because of an extraneous factor. For sure. And they needed to be taken care of. And so not only are they not, they're going to, you know, look at the average they're, when they decide what full employment is, they're, they're going to look at Everything. the people at the bottom of, of yes. the, uh, of the uh, pyramid as well and make sure that they are doing better before the. Exactly. And, and that's where I think the fiscal program is going to step in. Right, and, and therefore the check dole outs are going to continue in some form, might even accelerate as we go along. And therefore, it's very important to understand in such a low rate environment, coming back a little bit onto the investment side, right? The fixed income universe that we're dealing with, we talked about the difficulty in fixed income. We're dealing with less than 3% yield for the entire universe. So if you're not willing to take some credit risk, you make nothing at all. We did talk about the one yeah. percent yield on on, on treasuries. On treasuries, yeah. Uh, we, so what do you that's do? What, so you have to take some credit risk. Asian high yields, for example, dollar-denominated bonds, uh, global high yields. Uh, we talked about the European peripherals. Uh, these are all places that one should be looking to enhance your your bond portfolio. Right. Let's look at China as an example. Right. We talk about these Chinese property companies and how it's very risky. The developers are so risky. Yes. But there is a risk reward. You just have to be sensible about how portfolios are constructed and how they're populated. And if you do, they do have positive payoffs, even at this stage. So I think selection makes a very big difference. And also, I think there is an economic recovery factor that's happening, Mark. Don't you think that's... Well, I do. And this is where I, I don't know how it's all going to come together, Bhaskar, because you've got this amazing uh, you know, repression of, of financial markets through... Uh, unprecedented intervention from the government and never seen before low interest rates. But on the other hand, you know, these vaccines, uh, every day we learn something new. There's new news. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's bad. Like, for example, I was reading the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't appear as effective in preventing uh, mild to moderate COVID cases of the, of the South African variant. But apparently it does actually prevent the, the serious, requires hospitalization cases. And anyway, the good news, though, I, I can give you two that I just saw over the weekend. The first was that Russian Sputnik uh, yeah, vaccine. That, that was a pretty big positive surprise. Yeah, 92% efficacy. And, and I thought that was interesting because a lot of countries have ordered it or they plan to manufacture it in the emerging world. And, you know, they say that the whole world really can't get better unless everybody does. That's a little like, you know, your comments about... How Janet Yellen wants to make sure everybody's included. And so I uh, know a lot of South American countries have ordered that Sputnik vaccine in the Philippines, Indonesia, Iran, yeah, Turkey, Egypt. Then uh, the other thing is, uh, Bhaskar, that there's been some worry that the vaccines just stop people from getting sick. 
they don't stop people from getting COVID. And there's a huge difference because if you're vaccinated and you get COVID, you can still carry it to others. You can, but you don't. But you're not sick because the vaccine stopped you from getting sick. But exactly right. You think you're okay, so you go about your business, and and that's the thing. You could still pass it on to people who aren't vaccinated. So what I want to say is that um, Israel is the most advanced in the vaccination program among any country in the world. They're vaccinating people very aggressively. And and uh, I saw a very interesting statistic, um, Bhaskar, I also wanted to share with you. They're doing, obviously, the older folks first, so 60 years and older. And what they're seeing is the COVID cases in that age group are down um, almost 50% from the January peak. And COVID cases in everybody else are only down uh, less than 20%. So, good. so there is efficacy to that, that, it, that process. It really does prove, and that's just Pfizer and Moderna, uh, but it does prove that it doesn't just stop, those two at least, they don't just stop you from getting sick, they actually stop you from getting COVID and therefore from passing it on. That's that's good to know. Like you said, yeah. there is always constant bad news, good news, but the good news seems to be at least at the margin winning. We're getting more good news. And and actually, you know, Baskar, I wanted to ask you a question because the one country, one big country that really dodged the bullet China. was China. <laughs> and so so walk us through about, you know, it's it's really on a different trajectory in Absolutely. all senses. We said that even at the beginning of this year call, uh, you know, when we did the, uh, the, the initial uh, outlook, mm-hmm. uh, that China is also preferable for this year's actually portfolio mix and not just mm-hmm. for the future as well, but for this year, particularly because it's coming out stronger than everybody else. It's the first one out of the COVID uh, door, so to speak. Uh, they have had less infection. They've had, they've actually sort of, apart from the initial February, March impact, they've had very little impact after that. And they're almost back to being a fully functional economy. In fact, they're the only ones with the proper yield curve. Uh, they're the only ones with proper, the, the regular traditional policy making where it's still working, right? So I think, there is a lot more restraint by which China is actually growing, and this can be accelerated, right? So there are many, many positives, I would say, today. And it's also very funnily uncorrelated or lowly correlated to what happens in the U.S. Hmm, what do you mean the, by the, that? The U.S. equity markets, yeah. when, when they tend to go up or down, it takes much of the global markets along with it. Oh, absolutely. The same journey. Yeah, definitely. Right? Yeah. China seems to be bucking that trend a bit. Uh, it certainly has a 0.3% correlation coefficient as against if you were to do it to the European economies, for example, or much of the emerging markets, other ex-China, yeah. they're at 0.8. Yeah. Right. So there's the other assets are much more directly correlated to the U.S. equity markets. Well, uh, while in China, this has surprisingly been a slightly lower coefficient in terms well, of correlation. I, I think I can explain it, Bhaskar. It's because foreigners, you know, it's an $11 trillion market. Yes. So foreigners only own about 3% of exactly. it. Exactly. The locals govern uh, or decide how the markets function. And that, and also, I think the nature of the market is changing there. You know, so the, there is more and more new economy stocks to be owned. And I think this is also sort of making it more stable. It's actually a growth economy. In the past, it was just a growth economy, not a growth stock market. Now it's a growth economy plus those reflected in the stock market. You're right. I mean, I think around 10 years ago, when I think back of what the Chinese market was, I just think about banks, energy, materials, industry. And now I think about, and by by the way, they were almost all state-owned enterprises. And now I think about private sector, uh, technology, More than two-thirds of the market value. Yeah. Right, so that's yeah. that's significant. Do you know what I also think is significant is is, is that Chinese households realize that, and uh, I can't tell you how many times I met uh, Chinese clients uh, 
over the my career really who didn't want to invest in their own market and i feel really in the last two or three years that's been a sea change because yes. they recognize themselves that it's a very different market from what it was before i think this concept again and i think what's also crystallizing to everyone is the fact this bipolar world that we talked about it's crystal clear that you got to own both the east and the west in your portfolio right and and the clear opportunity set in china is astounding yeah i do think we're running out of time mark do you want to take the opportunity to conclude what we've actually said most certainly and thank you baskar well number 1 uh we are in a secular equity bull market that is the firm belief of uh julius bear and and so uh we want to stick with that theme we don't think it's changed in any way we do think that the economy is going to get better this year and there will be actually a a kind of a mini consumption boom that will happen at some point what do you think baskar maybe around the summer um, i think so i mean and uh, we, the, we're going to see that first uh, possibly preceding what we can see what happens in china and that could be possibly the road map to everybody mm. else but as covid cases go down as travel starts you should start to see that yes yeah so so the corollary of that is probably some inflation um but the central banks have already told us they expect that's going to come and they think it's a temporary thing and they're not going to you know get rid of their loose monetary policies because of it um and then uh, as we also mentioned after four decades of standing on the sidelines the governments have finally joined central banks uh and the you you said that's MMT modern monetary uh, theory so we see it first and foremost in the Biden administration and as you pointed out their emphasis on helping people like low wage workers and minorities to me that's also a very interesting thing because i always thought that progressive aspect of the democrats you know you'd see it in culture and the social aspect but but it's actually showing up in in the um in the in the in the way they're dealing with the economy as well um and so so uh, there you go i think then lastly as you just said china's the only major economy that's that's not you know sort of going down that uh modern monetary theory path uh it is it is making some changes they're putting in antitrust measures for example and we think there's nothing the matter with that it means that uh, there will still be competition rather than rather than monopoly in their economy and we do think uh you know it is it is a place that is going to offer superior returns uh relative to the rest of the world uh in terms of its currency its bond market and its stock market over the next 10 years well baskar that's all we have time for today but before we sign off remember those themes we went through in the beginning there were actually 12 ideas that were directly actionable in terms of investment vehicles and I just like to end by giving a performance update on those and I'm pleased to say only one of them is down so far this year it's actually kind of flat so let me just run through quickly uh the performance of the investment uh, ideas that uh, we ran with at the end of last year we're sticking with today and so first and foremost there are US technology stocks the Nasdaq is up 7.5% as of today healthcare stocks have returned 1.2% if we're looking at the iShares global healthcare ETF US cyclicals MSCI US cyclicals index up 4.6 small caps Russell 2000 up 13% then we've got emerging market hard currency debt that's the one that is down 0.5% so far this year thankfully compensated by chinese equities using the MSCI China index as a proxy those are up 13.2% Chinese bonds 
using the Double B Barclays China Aggregate Index up 1.1. The Chinese renminbi also up 1.1. And then rounding off, we recommended value, MSCI value index up 2.7%. iShares Cybersecurity and Technology ETF for the cybersecurity plays up 4.2%. Smart Mobility, uh, Robico Sam Smart Mobility Fund up 11.8. Last but not least, Smart Energy, Robico Sam Smart Energy Fund up 8.7%. And with that, thank you, Bhaskar, for joining me. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to us. And until our next podcast, thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.